Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we are continuing in a sermon series that we've been in this year uh, in the book of Acts, looking at uh, the unique stories of this earliest church uh, to see uh, what happened as what started out as a small, uh, rather beleaguered group of disciples uh, blossomed and grew uh, into the largest movement in the Roman Empire a movement that spread to every corner of the known world and beyond, and to look at the unique power and purpose that gripped those first Christians and the hope uh, that we too might be gripped and find our lives, our purpose, in that same story of God's purpose and His power. This morning, we're going to be looking at the rest of Acts chapter 13. Now, the challenge here is this is uh, about a 50-verse section of Scripture, and it is one story, but that's a lot of Bible. Uh, so we're going to read a section at the beginning, and we're going to read a section at the end, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the whole thing. So uh, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our Scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 15. And then again, verses 42 through 52. Acts 13, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, said, and then picking up again in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. 
and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. I love uh, this chapter. It's, it's bracketed by these two really, really poignant and beautiful stories. The story of Paul and Barnabas and John Mark uh, making this decision to go to this new city and then the, the aftermath of their ministry there. And in these two scenes, uh, we see that these two scenes are caused by the same thing. They point to the same power. The first story uh, that begins our chapter is this. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, their companion, have come. Uh, they remember, if you remember from last week, they just left the island of Cyprus where Barnabas was from. They now go and they sail and they land uh, just to the north of there on the coast of what's now Turkey. And they're going on this mission compelled by this uh, sense of purpose that they have that they're meant to spread the message of Jesus around the world. And so they get off the boat uh, there in uh, southern Galatia, and Paul decides that they're to go to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, we've seen one Antioch already. I know that uh, geography would be a whole lot easier if people would just stop naming cities Antioch. It makes it a little bit harder uh, to follow. But there was a Greek general um, named named, uh, Antochenes who liked to name things after himself. And so we have Antiochs all over this part of the world. But they're going to a different Antioch, Antioch and Pisidia. In this Antioch, from the place that they dock and get off the boat to where they're going, is about 100 miles away over a large mountain range. And so Paul and Barnabas get there, they land, and Paul says, we're going there. They're going to Antioch, which was the capital of this region. It was the largest city in the region. And we're not told why, but we're told that John Mark decides, no thanks, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem if it's all okay with you guys. Y'all go there. I'm going back. Now, at this point in Acts, it's just said that he left them. Later on, uh, we're going to hear the language that John Mark deserted them. So a little bit more of a loaded phrase uh, when this story is mentioned later on. We don't know exactly why, although we can guess. John Mark, uh, we know that the early church in Jerusalem met at John Mark's mother's house. So he likely came from a pretty well-connected family of some resources, a family that had a house large enough and comfortable enough to host most of the church in the region. And we know that Paul, when it came to this question of spreading the gospel, uh, was not altogether safe, comfortable, and level-headed, right? When he looks across this mountain range and says, we're going there on foot through a region that was known to be occupied by robbers and bandits, this was a hard trip. We think that Paul at this point was also uh, dealing with some illness because he, he says in writing to the Galatians later that he came to them at first because of an illness. And so if you're young John Mark looking at Paul with this crazy look in his eyes saying, I'm going over those mountains, and you know Paul is sick, maybe he's saying, you know what, somebody needs to go back to Jerusalem and tell them where to find your body when you go up there and die in those mountains. Somebody's got to go back to Jerusalem and tell them about these churches of Gentiles that have been planted so they know after you two idiots die in those mountains to send people. Or maybe all of a sudden he goes, no, you know what? Actually, mom's house looks pretty good right now. But anyway, John Mark, later he leaves them and goes back. He deserts them, as Paul's going to say. We know that later they do reconcile. 
But he goes back, Paul goes through the mountains to get to the capital of southern Galatia to bring this message because he was gripped by something. Something took this man from his life as he knew it and redirected him to a point where he was willing at great cost to himself to go to a different culture, to a Gentile city with this message. And then he goes to the synagogue and he preaches and then uh, beginning to get a mixed hearing uh, among the, the people of Israel, the, the diaspora Jews of the area, begins preaching to the Gentiles. There in the Gentiles in the second scene at the end of the story have this incredible reaction. We're told that almost the entire city comes out to hear them preach, comes out to hear this message. And what's the fruit of it? What do we see in them that they were rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, right? These Gentiles, these people who are not the people of Israel, these people uh, who are hearing a new story, who are hearing a new message, were so gripped by it that the city streets were filled with dancing and praise, that they were moved to this joy and this worship. And so these two scenes, one, a man gripped and moved to this kind of courage that seems really, really foreign to us, to risk everything to go share this message. And then these converts filling their streets with dancing and joy and praise. Both of these stories are motivated by the same thing. It's the same thing that moved Paul to courage and boldness and moved these people at, at word of their inclusion in God's grace to joy and worship. Right? Who couldn't use a little more of those two things? Right? Who couldn't use a little more courage as we live our lives, a little more boldness as we live out our lives and our loves and our jobs and our convictions? And who couldn't use a little more joy in their lives? And what this story points us to, it's the same thing that creates these kind of hearts that are full of boldness and joy and praise. And that thing we're told here is the word of God, the word of the Lord, right? God's speech into our lives. What this story tells us is, look, if you want boldness and you want joy, the answer isn't inside of you, right? That what, you know, if we're honest, when, we, when I typically think of, man, I, I could use some more courage in my life. Usually we go to self-talk, right? You can do it. You can get them. You got it. Right? You look yourself in the mirror and give yourself a pep talk. Am I the only one? Um, or uh, when you think about joy, what do we think? Our, our best answers are usually, well, I just need to think more positive thoughts. I need to frame my life and frame my thoughts more positively. But this story says, no, if you want joy and you want boldness and you want this transcendent sense of praise, what you need is to hear a voice beyond yourself. You need to see the God who made you, the God who's before all things, speaking and revealing himself to you, to be open, to be addressed by the God of the universe. Look at what, uh, it, it's, a, it's a little detail here, but the, what we see at the end of 13, the cause of the Gentiles, uh, their joy and their glory. When the Gentiles heard this, verse 48 they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And that's a strange little sentence. They began glorifying or giving worship, giving glory. And it doesn't say to the Lord. It says to the word of the Lord. Now, of course, uh, 
the worship of anything other than God is idolatrous, right? The worship of anything other than God himself uh, is a false act of worship. And so when it says they're glorifying the word of the Lord, it doesn't mean that Paul's there holding up a Bible and they're all bowing down to it, right? But they're, they're glorifying the revelation of God himself, that the revelation of God is God because it's a reflection of who he is. My old systematic uh, theology professor, John Frame, put it this way. He said, uh, God's word, wherever we find it, including scripture, is an object worthy of reverence. He says, I'm not advocating bibliolatry, which is worship of a material object with paper and ink and so on. The paper and the ink are creatures and not God, and we shouldn't bow down to them. But the message of the Bible... What it says is divine, and we should receive it with praise and with worship. Right? That the, and this is, this is stunning, really. To think that our, our doctrine of the Word of God, what we believe about the Word of God, is that it is a faithful representation of God's self. Right? It's not just God's words about other things, it's God's giving of Himself to us. Now, of course, you know, the Bible, when, when John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? He's talking about the Word of God as Jesus, right? That Jesus is the, the fullest expression of who God is. But his Word, as it points us to God, as it's God's disclosing of himself to us, we should receive in the same way that Moses received a word from a burning bush. Right In the same way uh, that Elijah heard God in the tornado and the whirlwind. When we hear God's word, we're experiencing, we're hearing from God's self. And what message does that word tell us? That's what we're going to see as we look at uh, this message that Paul brings to Antioch. That God's word is a message about God's action in Jesus to gather all nations into a new fellowship of sinners set free by his grace. God's word, the, the, the word, the, the story of God's revealing himself, it's a story of God's action, what God has done, to gather all people into a new fellowship of sinners freed by grace. First, it's God's action. The part that we skipped over uh, was a 40-verse sermon. Uh, and it is a beautiful sermon. This is fall, uh, Paul's first recorded sermon in the book of Acts. And what it seems like Luke wants us not to miss in this sermon is that Paul's preaching is exactly almost like Peter's preaching, is exactly almost like Stephen's preaching, if you remember that story. That all of the apostles were preaching one message. They sit down and do the same basic storyline, which is they tell the story of the Old Testament over and over again. And that's what Paul does here. He, he narrates the story of God's dealings with Israel. The first paragraph you have there is him telling the story of Abraham, right? That God chose Abraham. And then God sent Moses to give the law and to lead his people out of Egypt. And then God sent David to rule them as their king. And now God has raised up a son of David, another king in David's line, Jesus the Messiah. In all of the apostolic preaching, all of the first sermons that we have in the Bible follows this basic arc that God has been telling one story 
from Abraham, through Moses, through David, and now it's reached its, its high point in Jesus. That this is where the one story was going all along. And uh, if you look at Paul's sermon, which starts uh, there at the end of verse 16, almost every sentence of that sermon, almost every sentence of his narration of the history of Israel God is the subject of just about every verb in that whole set of paragraphs. God chose, God acted, God desired, God sent. Right? The, 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 what he's pointing us to is this. The Bible is basically the story of God. Right? It's the story. It addresses each one of us. Every one of us finds our lives impacted by it. But it's the story of God's action in the world. God's action all bent on one thing, the redemption of people, the redemption of his people, gathering his people to himself, that it's God who acts in the pages of the Bible, that it's God who's been pursuing us, that was pursuing his people in the pages of the Old Testament and is pursuing us. When Paul looks at that mountain range and says, I'm going to the other side of it, He's doing it because his heart has been gripped by the desire of God, right? That it's not, uh, it's not just his idea. He's saying, no, 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 God is doing this. God has been doing this. God has been uh, working to redeem all people. And now I need to go over there to tell those people about it. He's showing that his heart has been gripped by the thing that's, that's gripped the heart of God from the beginning of the Bible to reach his people by his grace. And he actually, Luke tells us here that the story actually begins even before the call of Abraham. Did you catch that line in verse 48? And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I mean, that's a powerful sentence. Paul preaches and he says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What he's saying there is, look, God's pursuit of his people didn't even begin with Abraham. It didn't even begin with Adam. It began in the mind and heart of God. This is what Paul, as he goes on in his ministry, will build out as the, his, his teaching about election. right? That God is the one who pursues. God is the one who chooses. That God is the one who comes after us. right? In our lives, we all get to a point uh, right? We, 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 if, if you're a, a believer in Jesus, you've gotten to a point at some point where you placed your faith in Christ. Right? Where you, you, as we sang about, you admitted, I need you. You saw in Jesus the one that you need, a savior for your sins. And for, all, for everything in us in that moment, it feels like we made a choice. We turned from our life, we, we embraced Jesus, and we did. That's a real thing. And yet looking back on it, you know, taking that, the zooming out and looking from eternity past, Luke says, no, no, you know what that shows? Is that God was pursuing you before you were pursuing God. That God was after you before you were after him. That God had his heart and his mind set on you when your heart and your mind were set on everything else. That it's God who pursues, and he's been doing it from the very beginning. He's been pursuing uh, from before you were, he's been a pursuing God. 
seeking after us. And the entire story of the Bible is the story of a seeking God, a God who's, who's acting in the world, sending Jesus for you, for us, and for our salvation. Kids, we got our kids in here today. Right, you guys, when you gather in your uh, Sunday school classes, when you gather in your kids' classes, you learn a bunch of stories, don't you? You've learned the story of David and Goliath. You've learned the story of Noah and the ark. And what Paul's telling us here is there are lots of stories in the Bible. But you know what? There's really one story in the Bible. That the whole Bible is the story of God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Right As you read the Bible, you run into heroes, don't we? We learned about Daniel and the lion's den and Elijah and all these heroes of the faith. But you know what? Of all the heroes in the Bible, they're all pointing to one hero. Right? They're all pointing to Jesus who loves you and who came for you. And that story is really, really simple, but it's a story so powerful that Paul looked at those mountains and said, no, I'm going to go over those mountains to tell people about the one story of God the one story of Jesus and his grace. And it's that same desire to tell that story that leads us to, that, that leads your teachers that, that work with you every single day, every Sunday when you gather. It's they want to tell you that story. Sometimes it feels like crossing a, a, mountain, a mountain range, doesn't it, teachers? Uh, to get up in the morning and to prepare your lesson and to get there. But it's all, everything we do as a church, for our young ones, for our old ones, is to tell the one story of Jesus, the one story that all of the stories of the Bible point to, that God loves you and he sent his son for you. And if by believing in him, you're included in his family, you're forgiven and loved. So the Bible is one story about what God has done in Christ to gather all, all people, all nations into one new fellowship. Paul does, uh, when he gets to Antioch, he does what he's going to do when he enters into every city in the Roman Empire that he goes to. He goes to one place first. He goes to the synagogue. Right now, we are now, by this point, well outside of the footprint of Israel. Right? He's now in uh, Gentile territory. He's in Galatia. But he still goes to the synagogue, which would have been the place that the, the Jewish community, we don't know how big or small it was there, that they met to gather. So he goes first into the Jewish community and tells them this story, right? Look, these stories that you know, the stories that you grew up on of Abraham and Moses and David, they've led us to Jesus. So he first goes to the synagogue and he tells the story. And when, when Luke describes the people that are at the synagogue, he describes them in two ways. He describes them as Jews, right? Members of ethnic and believing Israel. And God-fearers. God-fearers are those who are not part of, of the people of Israel, but who've come to believe in the Israelite God, who've come to believe in the God of the Old Testament. And everywhere he does this, he's going to be clear that there are, these are two different groups of people, right? And we see this throughout the ancient world, that there, there, were, there were Jews, there were the people of Israel, and then there were converts or God-fearers. But they're never quite lumped in with the people of God, right? They're never, they're, they're, it's like Israel's doing their worship in the synagogue and these God-fearing people are kind of standing at the outside observing, believing 
But there's still a line, there's still a gap between them and God's Old Testament people of Israel. And so then when Israel rejects, he gets a mixed reaction in, in Antioch, as he does most places, but as most uh, of, the, of the power brokers of the Jewish community there turn against them, he says they set up uh, wealthy men and women to, to, to resist them. As he's rejected by them, he goes and tells the Gentiles the same story. And now what Paul does is he sees them included not in two people, right? It's no longer just the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, the Jewish Christians and the God-fearers. What we see here and elsewhere is that they're now knit together in one church without distinction. What Paul says in, in, in Ephesians 2 is that God has torn down in the cross the dividing wall of hostility. Not only the wall of hostility that divides human beings from God, but the wall of hostility that divides human beings from one another. That he tears that down and then knits them together in one family. Not insiders and kind of add-on people. Right? What he's going to say in Romans is that we're now engrafted. Right? If you come from a Gentile background, right? if you're in this room and you're not of Jewish descent, right? if you're of uh, South American or African or European ancestry, Paul says you are like a wild branch that got grafted in to the people of Israel. And I love the way that Paul does this. As a part of that grafting them in together, he says, you know what? Now that you're a part of one family, you have the same family story. Abraham is now your great, 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 great granddaddy. Moses is now your prophet and leader, right? Just as much as if your ethnic parents had been in the Exodus out of Egypt, Moses belongs to you now. And David, David, you're, you're now going to be under the rule of a Davidic king. A king of Israel is now going to be your king. And so he fills their hearts and their minds with these stories and figures and symbols of Israel and says, this is your story now. Take it and run with it. This is your story now. This is your backstory. And now you're living into the present and the future of this same story. Right? What knits a people together are the stories and the symbols that we hold dear. Right, if you ever, um, some of you may have done this, if you go, to, if you go and apply uh, for American citizenship, right, if, you, if you've gone through that process, come in with a green card, moving towards citizenship, you take a test. Did you know that? It's not just about having been here long enough, marrying into it, whatever. You take a test. Some of you have taken that test, right? Um, and it's a test fundamentally about the American story, symbols, and figures, Right? It's about, hey, look, do you know the basic grammar of America, the way America is, the stories that we tell, the figures of our history, the, the, you know, the, the documents of our government, those kind of things. That to be engrafted into a people, to become a citizen, you learn the stories. You learn the symbols. How do you knit together a family, a fellowship, that is from every single nation of the world? Right? How do you knit together into one family a fellowship that has people in it of every language, of every tongue, of every nation, that has their own stories, their own symbols, their own heroes? You give them one story. Abraham and Moses and David and Jesus and Peter and Paul. Right? That we're knit together by learning one new story. 
that we all, whether you learn that, read that story in English, whether you read that story in Spanish, whether you read that story in Mandarin Chinese or Arabic, right? All the peoples of the world who've come into this one new family read the same stories, are shaped by the same God and find their purpose, find the, the bent of their life in a continuation of that story, of God's ongoing action in the world, gathered into one new people of every nation, of sinners set free by his grace. Look at verses 37 and 38. This is Paul's message as it reaches uh, its crescendo here to the, uh, to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to the whole city. It says in verse 37 uh, and 38. Where am I? Okay. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In this man, in Jesus, forgiveness of sins is available. Right? You know what he's saying? He's saying, look, Jew, Gentile, you all have the same biggest need. You need forgiveness of sins. Right? Your biggest need is to be reconciled with God, have your sins forgiven and done away with. And that's what God's done for you in Jesus. He's offered forgiveness of sins. And in him, you can be freed, you can be set free from everything, Paul says, that the law of Moses could not deliver you from. You can be set free from everything that the law could not deliver you from. Look, the, the commands of God is what he's talking about here, the law of God. Paul says the law of God is a good thing, right? The, the commands of God are a wonderful thing. But what he says, he says it's a good thing, but it's not a powerful thing, right? It can tell you what to do, but it can't help you do it, right? It can tell you what to do, and you'll only see how far short of it you fall, right? It can tell you what to do, in the same way that, uh, you know what, the traffic laws can show you what a terrible driver you really are, right? If you, I mean, do you always turn on your turn signal? Do you always drive the speed limit exactly, not going over it even a little bit? Not even a little bit, right? The, it shows us, it can show us what we could do, but what it does is it reveals all that we fail to do. And so it can show you what to do, but it can't give you a new heart, Right, that's, the, the, the Bible's diagnosis of sin isn't just that we do the wrong things sometimes. Right? It's not that, you know what, you mean well, but you just don't quite get it right all the time. Right? No, the, what the Bible tells us about sin is it's a heart-deep issue. Right? That I can know the right thing to do and still not do it. Right? Paul himself in Romans is going to say, this is Paul, you know, the Paul. He says, the good that I want to do, I can't do. Right? I know what I ought to do, and I just can't do it. I know what I ought to think about. I think about all the wrong things. I know the words I ought to be saying, and I say all the wrong words. I know I ought to love my neighbor, but I find myself wrapped up in my own selfishness. And so Paul says that the law can tell you what you ought to do, but it can't actually help you do it. He's going to say in Romans chapter 8, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh... Right, look, he says, the problem's not the law, the problem's you. 
right? The, the law is good and holy and right. The problem is the, the people who are trying to keep it and keep breaking it. So what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by sinful flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. The law that you couldn't keep, Jesus kept. The justice of God that you deserved, he poured out on his son so that you can receive forgiveness. You can be set free from this slavery to a law you can't keep. That you can be set free from everything that the law was without power to help you do. This is why the gospel, gospel means good news, right? It's good news to hear, right? Paul isn't just saying, he's not coming and telling the, the Gentiles, hey, look, here's the law. If you keep it, you can also be part of Israel. No, he's saying forgiveness of sins is available. This is good, good news. A new forgiveness before God, a new power for living a loving and obedient life. You can be set free from everything that holds you captive. Now this is, as we know, the beginning of, of this story in Pisidian Antioch. This is how they begin their walk with Jesus, how they begin this new family and fellowship of sinners set free by the gospel. But it's helpful to look at, you know, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story, right? Where does it go from here? Well, this is, uh, this is a church in Galatia, right? This is, it's to this church and to, to their family of churches, their church and their region, that Paul writes the letter to the Galatians. It was circulated among this little group of churches, do you remember that letter we preached on it? I know everybody remembers all my sermons all the time. We preached on that a couple months ago. But one of the things that Paul, coming to write these Galatians, says to them is he asks them a question. He asks them the question, what has happened to all your joy? Right, and this story provides some context from that. You can almost hear him saying, look, I was there when you first believed. I was there, do you remember when I preached this message to you and you were dancing in the street like fools and singing songs of God's glory and praising Jesus for his grace? Do you remember that? What has happened to all of that joy? What has happened to that contagious, fill the streets with singing kind of joy? And you remember what Paul says? He says, who cut in on you? You are running a good race. Having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being completed by the flesh? Remember what happened in Galatia was people took, the, uh, people took these spontaneous, joyful, glad-to-be-included Gentile believers, and they came and they started teaching them, hey, look, if you really want to be in, you've got to get circumcised, you've got to keep the law perfectly, you've got to earn your way in. That The joy killer of the Christian life the joy killer in Galatia is the same thing that kills my joy, which is when we take our eyes off of the freely given grace of Jesus, that stunning fact that we get to be included in his family, and instead put our eyes over on ourselves, our goodness, our righteousness, our rightness, our courage, right? what's in us. When our eyes go to what's in me, we only find burnout, we get worn out. We despair of our ongoing struggles. But when we keep our eyes on Jesus, when we keep his, our eyes on his grace, we stay full of joy and courage. 
We keep our ears tuned to the word of God, a word from beyond ourselves that speaks grace and love into our lives. Our hearts are filled with joy and worship and boldness. So do you want to live a life of courage and joy and gladness and worship? I would. I'd like, I'd like that. Keep your ear tuned to the voice of Jesus. Open to the word of God, the one who speaks God's love and his acceptance over you. Do we want to be a church that's courageous in our witness to Jesus, right? That's bold in our love towards our neighbors. Lord, I hope so. Right? Do we want to be a church that's marked by joy in worship, right? We've got enough angry, judgmental folk, right? We want to be a church that's gripped by mercy and gladness and boldness and love. Well, the answer isn't, well, you guys try harder to be different than those angry, judgmental people. You guys try to be different than those, uh, you know, cowardly, non-courageous people. No, the answer is to keep Jesus and his grace, the gospel of Jesus at our very center, to tune our ears to hear his voice, to come with our need to his table where he fills empty hands and empty bellies with his grace and with his goodness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are in need of your mercy. Lord, like the Galatians, uh, we confess that um, what once caused us joy often drifts from our vision. Lord, there might have been times in our lives where we've known the electrifying joy of knowing and feeling your love and your grace. And yet, Lord, there's also times where we throw ourselves back and throw pride on our own efforts, on the rightness of our own ideas, on the strength of our own morality. Lord Jesus, help us to throw ourselves on you and you alone. Help us to bring all of ourselves, the beautiful parts and the broken parts, the good parts and the sinful parts to your feet. Help us to tune our ears to hear your word, your voice of love, your voice of faithfulness, your voice that calls us uh, to follow you. Lord Jesus, we ask both as individuals and as a church that you would fill our ears with your word and fill our hearts with your gospel uh, so that we can live bold, courageous, and joyful lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.